This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. By the end of the time you listen to this, not even the end, by the time you listen to this edition of the Show Before the Show podcast, it may be the last edition of the Show Before the Show podcast if one of us wins a Powerball. Yeah, no, that would be nice, I guess. Okay. It would not be nice that the podcast no, would be over. No, but, but you know. uh, yeah, one of us would be rich. The so. billions of dollars would be yeah. fine. Uh, right, so you know. best of luck to you. Okay, you as well. Or more luck to me, I guess. It's Powerball Wednesday. Uh, <laughs> and with that, welcome in. Episode number 41 of the Minor League Baseball Podcast, the show before the show. I am Tyler Mon. He is Sam Dykstra. And uh, we are five weeks away, not even now. We're basically a month away from the first dates of pitchers and catchers reporting to spring training all kinds of top prospects are being invited along to their team's major league camps we've had a whole uh, slew of stories like that up on milb.com in recent days but uh starting to get to that point in the year where you can really feel like it's coming you know yeah a little bit i mean especially that we know you know spring training is next month we can actually say that again i have my problems with spring training starting in february which is not a spring uh month at all but yeah no you're starting to get the taste in the air which is especially good because it was a uh, 10 degree wind chill here in New York today. Oh, no, thank you. It's actually pretty nice here today. It was like 55. Sorry, New Yorkers. Um, <laughs> so, hey, here's what we got coming up on the show today. A really interesting interview on the docket, which will be coming up here in about 10 minutes or so. The new director of player development in the Seattle Mariners organization, Andy McKay, will join the show. Uh, Sam and I have been kind of nerding out about the possibility of interviewing Andy McKay really since he was hired by the Mariners uh, after the conclusion of the 2015 season. Because of who he is, he's not a traditional hire as a player development director. Background is not necessarily in player development in the traditional sense. Instead, he's been on the mental skills side. He was a Colorado Rockies uh, peak performance coordinator uh, in his past life and was hired on with the Mariners to head up the player development department, not coming from a scouting background, not coming from a baseball administration background. So he's a really interesting hire and is one of the, the guys that we were really anxious to get a chance to talk to this offseason. And you will hear that coming up this afternoon. Uh, we recorded it just a little while ago and i think as soon as we got done thought man yeah it was basically exactly what we were uh, what we were hoping for um so it's a really interesting one it was it was a fun one to do yeah the the best interviews are ones in which we actually learn something and that we come at yes. it with something we didn't know at the beginning um so that's how i'll te- tease it is that we learn something about andy mckay we learn something through andy mckay um and i think it's kind of useful for anybody who's thought about what player development is like and what kind of goes into that system and especially for mariners fans who are interested to yes. see who the new guy is going to be um so yeah it was it was definitely one of the more inter- interesting interviews we've done from non-players i would say that was what i was going to say if you're a mariners fan and you've been concerned about this hire because it doesn't necessarily fit that bill as being a traditional hire i think uh, a lot of those fears would be allayed if you listen to this interview because andy mckay obviously has the very much has uh, i think a, a correct approach to what he's doing and how he intends to turn that system around and um and is pretty open about the things that they need to do to get it there so um that's coming up here in just a little bit uh before that you can rate review and subscribe to the show before the show on iTunes. Head on over there. Find us where the Minor League Baseball Podcast. We've been rocketing up the baseball charts ever since we got this thing started last April. Um, we're like close to, I think, cracking into the top 30 in iTunes and, uh, and baseball podcasts. So head there, rate, review, and subscribe to the show before the show. You can also find us on the site. We've got an RSS feed there if you are not an iTunes user. Um, so all kinds of fun. And, uh, Let's dive in. Three strikes for episode number 41 of the show before the show. We're going to kick things off with uh, the first of six fantastic stories. I'm already going to call them all fantastic because when Sam writes something, that's how it ends up. The first one of this year's prospect projections dropped earlier this week. It dives into the American League East. Sam explained these stories and what it means for uh, this one about the uh, the five teams in the AL East and everybody else uh, who will await their teams coming up. 
Yeah, so the way we kind of work these, I teased it a little bit last week. If you listened last week, if you didn't, I'll explain it again. Um, there's a project, there's a bunch of different projection systems which take, you know, previous performance by different players. You know, no matter what the level, whether it's major leagues, Triple A, Double A, they take that all into account, and they try to project the season to come. So for this, for our purposes now, the 2016 season, um, I use Steamer, Steamer 600 more specifically, um, which is just a projection system that Fangraphs uses. All the data is through Fangraphs. It's very easy to find. Um, so what I did is I took the top 30 prospects in each system. We started out this week with the American League East. Uh, top 30 prospects, if a prospect had put, played at least some time at Double A, I included them in the chart uh, just to see what their projections are for this upcoming season. And I say that it's Steamer 600 because Steamer 600 means – this is what a player is projected to do if they play the entire season. The 600 comes from 600 plate appearances for position players, 450 plate appearances for catchers who don't normally get, you know, the the entire playing time that your outfielders, other infielders get. Uh, 32 starts for starters and 65 appearances for relievers. Um, so this is just what would happen if your favorite prospect um, was on the the opening day roster and played the entire season, no breaks, didn't get sent down, that kind of thing, what would happen? Um, so you're bound to get some interesting results. Uh, I, the headliner for me was Gary Sanchez, a guy we've talked a lot about here on the podcast. Um, had a really, really good season last year at AA and AAA in the Yankee system. Uh, got a brief cup of coffee in, in September. Um, played, I think, exclusively as a pinch hitter, so didn't get any games defensively. Um, but Steamer really likes what he could do if given a whole season, obviously, Yankees have a pretty good catching situation right now with Brian McCann, but their backups uh, backstop position is kind of up in the air. They traded John Ryan Murphy, so Sanchez could fit into that mode. Maybe they send him back to AAA. Steamer 600 thinks if Sanchez was to get a full year at the major league level, he would hit 17 homers, have a 249 average, and have a WRC plus, which is basically just measuring how a hitter's what a hitter's value is, with 100 being exactly average he had a wrc plus of 96 so just slightly below average but for a catcher that's still really good um according to steamer his war his wins above replacement would be two and a half which would be great for any catcher um that's roughly around what Derek norris was um so we're talking about you know top five at least top 10 catcher if gary sanchez was to play the full year next year um that's something to get very excited for for yankees fans especially all the years um sanchez has been at the top of their system kind of dipped down after having some struggles at double a now it seems like he's broken through that level we'll see what the yankees do with him um i I think it's more likely that they send him back to triple a they want him to get as much playing time as they can if anything happens to mccann or potentially austin romine sanchez will be right up there and um it seems like he could certainly hit the ground running uh, a couple other interesting ones in there. Um, what I, I like to do is I, I wanted to uh, put put all top 100 prospects in there um, just to see what their projections would be because they're the guys who we always get questions about. You know, so-and-so goes four for four. Call him up. He's ready. Uh, that especially happened in the Yankee system with Jorge Mateo. Really exciting shortstop. Really, really fast. Uh, it, Steamer thinks he could steal 41 bases in the in the major leagues right now. Um, but it, all of his other stats are just kind of off. He's only played at high A so far, split time between high A and uh, single A last year in the Yankee system. Um, they have him for a negative 1.5 bore. So he's one of those guys you kind of have to pump the brakes on um, in that Yankee system. And that's what I kind of like about Steamer is that it shows you, you know, guys who are definitely ready, guys who need more time um, and, you know, everything in between there. Uh, one guy who on this podcast said he wants to be a major league all-star next year was yes. Blake, Blake Snell. Um, Blake Snell, according to Steamer 600, would have a 4.07 ERA. Still plenty of strikeouts, eight and a half strikeouts per nine innings, which would be very impressive amongst anybody at the major league level, especially for a guy coming in as a rookie. Um, the, based on his previous years, he, this was much better this year. His, he worked on his walks this year. That's part of the reason why he was so effective across three levels was you know, minor league pitcher of the year across all uh, mediums that you know, voted on those kinds of awards. Uh, but they still have him pegged for four and a half walks per nine. Not great control, uh, 4.19 FIP. So he'd be roughly a two-war player, which would be good. You know, that's a 3-4-5 starter. Um, still probably going to get some extra time. Um, but Steamer does think he could be 
a solid major leaguer as things go right now. Uh, you can go through the list. There's a couple other ones. The system that I'm really down on basing, based on looking at this are, is the Blue Jays. Um, the Blue Jays could really use some some pitching help, I think, at the major league level. Just doesn't look like it's gonna 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 come from the minor leagues right now. Still, some off season to play with. Maybe they'll make some moves, um, but it just there's not the impact bat or arm in that Blue Jays system right now that I think could help the Jays get back to you know what was a very exciting 2015. And so stories will be coming up on all of the five remaining divisions in these. And uh, it's really cool because it gives you an idea of what to expect from guys who maybe you haven't even necessarily thought about going into this season. Um, And some of the guys who I think – are at stages in their careers where you really want to know how they would measure up. Um, some of the the interesting ones to look at, to me, came out of the Baltimore Orioles system. I mean, you've got numbers in there on Dylan Bundy and Hunter Harvey. Obviously, Hunter Harvey is a long ways off, but what a lot of people want to know what Dylan Bundy could potentially look like this year. Um, Christian Walker, who had a breakout season, uh, what he would look like if he was at the major league level. So it gives you sort of um, just a, a barometer on what this talent looks like uh, throughout systems. But, yeah, when you look at that Blue Jay system, that definitely is one that stands out among these five as just not being on that same level right now. Yeah, the, Andy Burns is kind of interesting to me just as a third baseman. You know, Josh Donaldson obviously coming off an MVP season, he's not going to unseat him. He's not going to get those 600 plate appearances, but that that's not somebody who I would have circled as being at top of the list there. Um, you know, there's there's some other surprises. Daniel Robertson, uh, Steamer seems to think is actually ready to play shortstop right yeah. now with the Rays. Not not be a great shortstop, and when it's a top 100 talent, you want to make sure they're absolutely ready, not just be kind of good, which is as a 1.3 war guy right now, he would just be kind of good. Um, but that's kind of interesting given his stock dropped a little bit next year or last year. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's fun to just pour over. You, you can, uh, click to any team you want in this, this ALEs feature goes right there. You can cut through all the other words I've written on the other systems. If you're not interested in them and, uh, we'll have five more of these rolling out in the weeks to come. Strike two, Sam fire away. Yeah, th- this one goes to you, Tyler, because this is your story. Uh, one of the more interesting things and interesting phrases, I think, from the uh, 2015 season. This is going to go on my story. epitaph. Yeah, I'm j- I just love saying this phrase, which is sans <laughs> spleen. And I'm going to say that again just to make sure I say it right. Sans <laughs> spleen. Uh, David Dahl you know, suffered a, a violent collision this year on May 28th, decided that he was going to have his spleen removed, um, had a couple weeks and months of rehab, uh, and ended up talking to you for one of our first prospect Q&As. What did he kind of tell you about what that process was like, where he was during his rehab, and how he's feeling now? You know what I thought was really interesting about talking uh, with David about this was the his recovery threw up some red flags, I think some question marks for people around baseball, uh, in that the Rockies did not send him to the complex in Arizona to recover from a pretty major internal surgery. I mean, he, if you don't recall, uh, May 28th, a collision with his teammate Juan Siriaco, he was taken off the field and basically put directly into an ambulance, taken to the hospital. He had lacerated his spleen while going for a short pop-up in a shallow center in that collision. Uh, Initially underwent surgery to save the spleen then upon learning that that would take him out for the entirety of 2015 elected to have the spleen removed so he undergoes one surgery to have the spleen saved then undergoes a second surgery to have it taken out so he could return comes back six weeks later in the interim he never left Connecticut, uh, except with the team. He was in the hospital uh, in New Britain. His mom came out, stayed with him in the hospital, and then later in a hotel for a little while. His dad was actually there when the injury happened, so at least he was around family. But I think some people kind of thought, well, why wouldn't you send him back to the complex, let him work with trainers, let him work with the nutrition people, the strength coaches, all that? And David said... I didn't really feel that way at all. And to be honest, I love being around my teammates. I love being able to watch them be in the dugout, be engaged, be around them. Um, and so that, to me, was maybe the most telling thing about that injury. And even more so, I guess, from a baseball standpoint, is that he doesn't really seem to feel any ill effects from it. Uh, going into 2016, there are some things that he has to manage. He gets a flu shot every year. Uh, he has to get antibiotics a little bit earlier than maybe other people if he is feeling sick. There are some other things not having a spleen um, that make you you 
kind of different going forward physically than what he would have been uh, at this time last year. But it doesn't seem like there are any ill effects for David Dahl other than that. And I think more than anything, what the offseason this year has done is it's just given himself a chance to quiet down and heal. And not just from the spleen thing. It was just a few days after he came back from losing his spleen, he fouled a ball off of his right knee and said that got sort of progressively worse as the season went on. Just with the, the aches and pains and the grind of a minor league season toward the end of the year, it was stiff up to the point where he couldn't even really walk on it comfortably. Now that feels 100%. The lack of spleen feels 100%. So it looks like he's really set to go into 2016. He was slated to go to the Arizona Fall League because of the knee thing. The Rockies decided against that. They sent Rymel Tapia in his place. So Dahl really just got a chance to rest. And what he did kind of dovetails perfectly with what we talked about to, to intro this segment. He moved to Arizona, lived, uh, worked out of the facility this entire offseason. That's where we did the, the Q&A from. And so it really seems like he's ready to go. I mean, he's 100% and maybe a little bit more at this point because of all that rest. Yeah, and uh, I, I kind of find it interesting the situation he's down there in Arizona. It seems like there's a couple of Rockies prospects who are all kind of bonding down there. What did he kind of sound like when he was talking about that yeah that was really cool um he's living right now with trevor story and ryan mcmahon who could eventually uh depending on how things play out they could be the future left side of the infield uh for the rockies ryan mcmahon a third base prospect had a fantastic season this past year with class a advanced modesto trevor story is really on the doorstep now and depending on what goes on with the jose reyes situation a possible suspension coming up for his domestic violence issue trevor story could be the opening day shortstop for the rockies so between those two guys and Dahl, who I think most people would imagine will probably start the season with Double A Hartford, but could crack the major leagues uh, at some point this season. That's what it seems like is they're all very in tune with each other. And when the Rockies have been successful, it's been because they've had groups come up together like that. And that's one of the questions I posed to him is what does it mean for you guys to know that, you know, you're kind of winning at the same levels at similar times. Trevor story is a little bit ahead of those guys in the system, but you know, David Dahl and Ryan McMahon have had experience winning uh class a titles with Asheville. Um, they're all pretty similarly uh, structured in terms of not only age, but their playing experience, the levels at which they're coming up. They seem to be a very tight knit group. And he really touted that, that it's neat that away from the field, they just want to hang out with each other. They go, uh, David said both of his roommates play golf, so he's been trying to teach himself how to play golf this year, uh, the, which pretty much only involves him going to the golf course and Trevor and Ryan ripping on David for how, how bad he is at golfing, uh, which was A, hilarious, and B, fascinating because he told me he's teaching himself how to golf right-handed so he doesn't mess up his left-handed baseball swing. That blew my mind. I asked him like nine follow-up questions about that. <laughs> yeah, I've always uh, that kind of made me think about like other <laughs> baseball players because like, you hear so much about guys who just love to golf mike hessman loves to golf remember he would yeah he was talking about the first he's, thing he, he did spent after 36 he, holes on on the, the course right after he announced his retirement exactly so i i wonder how real a thing that is in terms of messing up your swing i mean you, you don't want anybody to even chance it if it comes to that but i feel uh, like it's got to be even worse than i mean everybody talks constantly about uh you know how the home run derby screws up a swing i would think that golf would have much more lasting effects than that well, it's it's just such a different motion that I feel like your brain and your your muscles could kind of figure out you know what it's doing. Uh, home run derby, at least, you know, it's the same motion. You're just putting so much power into it, and that could throw you off. But a, a club swing versus a bat swing are just two different things. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not a scientist. Uh, which is, <laughs> we I think, the first time I've said podcast. that on this podcast, but it should not be the last. Uh, so I, I don't know, but it, it, the amount of baseball players. You know that I know who who love golf, play golf a lot. Um, I, I this is the first time I've heard of that. So uh, something to ask. You know, going forward, anyway. Yeah, that's going to be one of our standard questions now for everybody in a prospect Q and A going forward. How do you okay. play golf? A, do you golf? B, do you golf with a different handedness than your baseball swing? It's going to be it going forward. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> So, yeah, it was cool. Uh, Q&A is up right now at MILB.com with David Dahl, and we're getting those all started as well. I know Kelsey Hennigan had a really good one with Jacob Nottingham, uh, traded from the Houston Astros to the Oakland Athletics last year, a uh, different adjustment to a different level, a different adjustment to a different organization. So that was a really good one as well. So prospect Q&As are up on the site now and are coming fast and furious this spring. And uh, with that, we'll head into strike three.
for episode number 41. And we wanted to do kind of a, uh, a lightning round, this or that. And so we're going to pepper this segment with questions, taking two top prospects, pitting them against each other, and picking one or the other uh, and explaining a brief rationale as to why. So for strike three of this week, that's how we're going to get it started. And we're going to go with two middle infielders, Sam Trey Turner, the Washington Nationals organization, Orlando Arcia, breakout prospect in 2015 in the Milwaukee Brewers system. Go. Yeah, uh, I, I know I called this a lightning round and I sent you the email and I want to come out with my answer so quickly. It's just like even now that I, I've made my decision and I, 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 it's not going to feel good coming out of my mouth. I am going to say Arcia just because I like his defense so much more. The, the, the reports on his defense have been so glowing. The, uh, the offensive improvements he made last year show that he can at least be a league average bat, I think, when he makes the majors, which could be this year. Turner has speed to burn. You know, he's, he's obviously a great bat. He's been a plus 300 hitter everywhere he's gone in his short stays in the minors. He's already played at the majors. Lots to like there. Um, I just think everybody thinks he's going to be an average defender who could end up moving to second base at some point if the nationals or whatever team he ends up sticking with decides it so just the fact that arcia is just such a good defender at such a premium position i'm going to take him Okay, um, I'm going to go with Trey Turner. I like what Trey Turner can do playing multiple positions. Uh, I love the speed factor with him, and Orlando Arcia has speed as well, but Trey Turner talking with some of the people in the Nationals organization for the, the organization All-Star story, and he was actually named an organization All-Star in two different systems, which is a an extreme rarity, but they rave about his speed and how well it plays on a baseball field. We've talked about that from time to time on this show. It's one thing to be fast. It's another thing to be fast in a baseball sense. Yeah. This isn't just running the 40. Um, and so that's what I really like about Trey Turner. So I'll take Trey Turner in this, in this conversation. It's a that's little, good. I mean, that's good that we have, debate. yeah, we have some slight disagreements, but that's fine. I mean, MLB.com has them ranked 11 and 12, Yeah, which means you could flip them either way. And that's right. why I want to talk about these two guys. All right. Uh, point B of strike three in this conversation. Uh, Byron Buxton, who has been the top prospect in baseball for the last two seasons, or the number two prospect in baseball going into 2016, Corey Seager, another shortstop. Yeah, for me, I, this is the debate of who is the top prospect in baseball. Um, you know, Buxton reads really, really well on a scouting report sheet. You know, lots of 60s, 70s, some 80s on there when it comes to speed. Um, you know, everybody raves about his speed as well. I'm going to take Seager just because I really like the results he's had at higher levels, uh, particularly, you know, triple a last year was a 278 hitter, uh, 13 homers, 783 OPS. That's pretty good for triple a. And then just destroyed the majors when he made it, made it up there has already shown himself bucks. And obviously, um, got to spend a good chunk of time with the twins last year too. Hasn't quite found that same success, but still young, um, at just 22. Uh, but Seager, just the way he's performed at every level, um, the, the numbers he's put up wherever he's gone, and again playing at a premier position at shortstop, you know maybe he ends up moving to third later down the line. Um, but if you're going to give me the game's top prospect, the person you should be most excited about, I take Seager. Okay. Um, I'm going to go with Buxton in this conversation just because I feel like the last few seasons with him battling injuries and kind of nagging things, I mean, not necessarily anything to be extraordinarily concerned about, I feel like he is due for one of those breakout seasons that makes everybody go, that's why he's been the number one prospect. That athleticism, that tool set, um, all of the promise that Byron Buxton has carried, I feel like over the last couple of seasons i don't want to say it's been wasted but it's been hampered because of those injuries 2014 obviously was very rough he only played in 31 games and missed the majority of the arizona fall league last year 72 minor league games 46 big league games it just seems like at some point he's going to put it all together uh and really flash why he has been this guy for so long um and he does everything well and the thing that we you know you can't go wrong with either of these guys i mean i remember when we did our arizona fall league kind of our fantasy draft we talked about how when you can pick guys who play premium positions like these two seager up the middle as a shortstop and buxton in center field you can't really go wrong with either of these picks but i just feel like buxton again with uh, the major league experience under his belt and offseason season 
get healthy. This year feels like it's going to be a year where he shows that's why everybody was touting him the way they were. Miguel Sano made up to the big leagues last year, made a big impact uh, with the Twins. That system is still so loaded with talent. I don't know. Just For some reason, this season feels like Buxton could really be uh, on the verge of something huge again. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like I, I, Again, this is like who is the top prospect. Player. Right, this right. This is not me saying, like, well, Buxton should be number 25. Right, exactly. He is at least top five, at least top three even, I think. Um, but, yeah, I, my disagreement is just that Seager has just done so well at every level. Um, Buxton hasn't quite been able to prove himself, like you said, because of the injuries. And it, it would not surprise me in the least if Buxton is this year's you know, AL Rookie of the Year by the time we get to the end of the season. So uh, we're going to switch from uh, guys in different systems to guys in the same system to wrap this conversation up and transition into our next topic. And we're going to dive right into the Seattle Mariners with their number five and number six prospects, two guys who uh, have some name recognition now around the minor leagues because of the success that they've had, one of them at a lower level last year, one of them at the upper levels, uh, and now a new addition to this organization. But you go Tyler O'Neill, who last year blew up. Up with the Class A Advanced Bakersfield Blaze or Boog Powell, a trade acquisition from the Tampa Bay Rays this offseason? Yeah, um, I I like these two guys just as picks. Again, they're number five and number six right now in the Mariner system, according to MLB. Um, both outfielders. O'Neill just has that power that really, really excites you. It came in the Cal League. And for that, I'm, I'm going to go Powell, who doesn't really have any power, um, is a 30 great power guy only hit three homers last year in 117 games between double a AA and triple a but what i really like in him uh is his obp skills excuse me uh between those two levels last year had a 385 obp walked 61 times only struck out 79 um shows some really good discipline strike zone recognition all those light things you would really really like to see um at the top of a lineup or even at the bottom of the lineup as a number nine guy who can be that second leadoff guy, um, you know, in a major league uniform. So for, I, I think O'Neill, I really want to see what happens to him once he gets out of the Cal league. 32 homers is great. It's a lot to dream on. Uh, doesn't necessarily have that same patience. Um, only walked 29 times last year at a 316 OBP. Um, so I, I think it's just, what is your taste? Um, for me, I'll, I'll take Powell for now, but if O'Neill hits 30 plus homers again this year, he's going to go screaming past him and, um, could very well be the, the future of the Mariners outfield. Yeah, I think I'm on the same page with you. Uh, Powell right now kind of presents the the more finished product and the, the better transitional guy to the major league level, I would say at this stage, um, that being said, Tyler O'Neill, I mean, he hits 32 homers, and the Cal League is going to inflate that number a little bit. But he hit 32 homers in Bakersfield, so it's not quite the same as hitting 32 in Lancaster or High Desert or some of those real launching pads. So I'm the same way. I think he needs to prove himself uh, outside of the California League. But that being said, he still did some very impressive work with the bat in not the most, uh, you know, kind of wild pinball type of atmosphere uh, in the Cal League. So 2016 will be big for Tyler O'Neill. But right now, I think Boog Powell, is, he kind of gives you the best profile for one of these guys going forward um that system is really interesting because there are some very intriguing pieces there uh the majority of that talent is at the lower levels in the system alex jackson luis gohara tyler o'neill last year was still a class a product uh in class a advance luis liberato is the seventh ranked prospect in the system luis was in uh the short season class a northwest league last year ryan yarbrough left-handed pitcher is the number eight ranked prospect he was only in bakersfield so a lot of that talent is really really low in the system the Seattle Mariners are going through a pretty big culture change right now. They have tried virtually everything to win in Seattle over the last handful of seasons. Big money signings, uh, locking up Felix Hernandez for a while. But what they have not been able to do is get back to the postseason. The next generation of Mariners talent is going to look vastly different from what we've seen over the last few seasons and due in large part, I think, to the way that that system is going to be molded. And that's where we're headed next. Andy McKay is the brand new director of player development in the Seattle Mariners organization, brought over formerly on the uh, the mental side of the game as a mental skills coach in the Colorado Rockies system. Again, not the traditional hire to be in that position, but really, really interesting guy for us to get a chance to talk to. And uh, if you're a Mariners fan, listen up over the next 10, 15 minutes or so, because this is a really, really interesting look into what the organization is going to look like going forward. Uh, Andy McKay of the Seattle Mariners joins the 41st edition of the Minor League Baseball Podcast, the show before the show, next. 
One of the more interesting hires of the offseason was uh, in the Seattle Mariners front office. Kind of a house cleaning there from the 2015 season on to 2016. And the Mariners going in a different direction with the farm system for 2016. And the man who is in charge of that project is the new director of player development for the Seattle Mariners, Andy McKay, who joins us on the show. Andy, welcome. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, guys. Absolutely. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming on with us. So let's let's jump into this topic. Uh, you inherit a system that has a lot of really exciting pieces, has some work to do, obviously, to build itself back up to where the system has been in the past. But the thing that I think fascinates most people about the hire of you to head this project for the Mariners is your background. Um, we hear so often about whether it's the analytics guys or the guys who've been in player development for a long time. You come from the mental side of the game, formerly the peak performance coordinator in the Colorado Rocky system, a sports psychologist. You're very in tune with that, what it means for athletes uh, growing, getting to the big leagues and beyond. Um, how did this whole process come about? I mean, obviously you've had uh, a long-standing relationship. Jerry DePoto is a guy who's been around this game for a long time. He has some ties with the Rockies organization. You guys have known each other for a while, but tell us how this came about um, being, you know, not necessarily the most traditional hire uh, to come on as a, a player development director. Okay, well, uh, you know, real quick, and I, I always have to start this with kind of the uh i guess an awkward moment where uh, i'm not a sports psychologist okay and and the reason i say that is because i i don't want anybody thinking that i'm portraying myself as one um and that was something that the media picked up on very quickly because of my title as mental skills coach um so i'm not a licensed psychologist um but i did teach a sports psychology uh class at sacramento city college for about 15 years and uh, and I made uh, kind of a name for myself in the industry as a mental skills coach. So, um, you know, it's a big part of what I do. Uh, I believe in it wholeheartedly, but um, I certainly do not want to be perpetuating the, the myth that I'm a, a licensed psychologist. So um, when I got uh, hired uh, with the Rockies, it was kind of a um, – interesting story. I was coaching in the Northwoods League, uh, summer baseball, and I was coaching uh, Dan O'Dowd's son, uh, Chris, at the time, who is now, uh, I believe he's in double-A with uh, Cleveland, I mean, excuse me, with uh, Atlanta. So that's how I initially uh, got involved in professional baseball, was through Dan. Um, But I was also coaching uh, Tyler Service, Scott Service's son, uh, was part of that program as well. So I'd kind of gotten to know Scott as well during that time. So as I was working for the uh, Rockies, um, you know, I think that there was probably, um, you know, some mutual friends of of Jerry and Scott, people they'd work with in Colorado. Uh, I had never met Jerry DePoto. I'd never spoken to Jerry DePoto uh, until I interviewed with him. Uh, But there were the connections of the Rockies. You know, both Scott and Jerry had spent time there. And, uh, you know, so when this came up and, um, you know, Jerry asked me to interview with him, um, you know, I think part of it was the, uh, the mental skills background, but, you know, I've also coached, uh, baseball for, you know, 20 years. I've, I've managed teams. I've been a pitching coach. I've been a hitting coach. Um, I have an MBA, uh, so I do have a background in business and, uh, organization, uh, organizational skills and whatnot. So. Um, kind of a, a diverse background that I think probably at the end uh, attracted Jerry. Yeah, and, and part of that, you know, you mentioned, you know, not necessarily being a psychologist, but at least mental skills. How much in player development do you think that that part of the game is kind of overlooked, you know, generally by the baseball community, or is it overlooked? Is it just something fans don't necessarily hear a part of? Um. I do think it's overlooked, um, and I think that there's a lot of uh, um, uh, it's a difficult area to teach. It's a difficult area to quantify, um, and so people can be resistant to it. There's a, there's a lot of people working at it in the industry, um, in, in very different degrees and levels. And I think that what I've been able to do, um, maybe that separates a little bit, is um, you know, I've been able to connect with the players uh, very well because of my baseball background. Um, you know, but it is, it's not, uh, you know, it's not 10% or not 20%. Uh, baseball is 100% mental. And uh, and I think most baseball people would agree with that. And, 
you know, the, the body follows the mind and the body does what the mind tells it to do. So your physical breakdowns are always preceded by mental breakdowns. Um, so I think probably most teams are employing somebody and I think they're having, you know, different levels of success. Um, probably in some scenarios where it's really good work in other areas where it's maybe just okay. Andy, you've uh, obviously had a ton of experience in maybe the most difficult organization, uh, arguably, I guess, in all of sports uh, for the mental side for athletes, and that's the Colorado Rockies because of what it means to pitch at Coors Field. And I know so many guys who have gone through that with the Rockies have really benefited from the emphasis that that organization put on the mental side. Jorge De La Rosa comes to mind, really struggled with the mental side, started working with the Rockies staff on that, um, and, and turned himself into the, obviously, you know, the winningest pitcher in Coors Field history and one of the best pitchers here. Uh, in Colorado at the major league level, but to have gone through it with the Rockies, to have done it in a situation that's probably more difficult than any other situation that you could find in baseball, how much do you think that helps you knowing what it's like to talk to guys who really struggle because of a, a very specific um, thing, an issue in their careers um, coming up through a system? Now you go to Seattle, it's a little bit, I guess, more mellowed out compared to maybe what you dealt with with some of the guys who've, who've played in Colorado. You know, it's an interesting question because, um, you know, you know, number one, my, my time in, in Colorado was uh, a tremendous period of growth for me. And, uh, you know, I have nothing but, um, you know, gratefulness in my heart for everybody involved with the Rockies uh, for the opportunities they gave me there. Um, and, you know, George did make tremendous progress. Um, you know, George is one of those outliers who – you know, he's an incredible pitcher in Coors Field. Um, he's, he's had seasons where he's had better home splits than road splits, um, which is just mind-boggling. But, you know, the interesting part of your question is I can honestly tell you in, uh, you know, my almost four years there, I never had a single pitcher ask me about or did I deal with a single pitcher on the aspects of pitching in Coors Field. Um those, uh, you know, the elevation is something that is really, um, um, the media pays a lot more attention to it than the players do. And, um, so it, it actually never, it never once came up, uh, in all of my work there. Um, you know, I was certainly aware of it and, uh, you know, and I, and people don't believe me when I say that, like they think I'm just trying to maintain confidentiality, but they absolutely never came up. Um, you know, I think that uh, the players feel like, you know, it is what it is. We're both, you know, both uh, sides, both teams are playing at the same elevation. And, uh, you know, good pitchers. I've, I've seen plenty of really good games in that ballpark. Um, you know, I've seen guys throw shots in that ballpark. I've seen really good breaking balls. Um, so it never came up. And, uh, and I certainly didn't bring it up. Um, you know, but we all know that there is some issues there and we've all seen the data and we've seen the home road splits. We see what happens to position players when they go on the road and, um, whatnot. But, um, that was, that, that was never part of my, my, my work in Colorado. All right. Well, yeah, now let's kind of pivot to the organization you're working in now with the Mariners. Um, you know, Tyler alluded to it. Um, the the open there, just how much you know this team is kind of in flux right now. There's been a lot of trades this off season, mostly at the major league level. But you guys bring in a guy like Boog Powell to the farm system. Um, what what? How do you kind of evaluate the system as it stands right now? Um, you know, going into your first season in this new role. Well, I think one of the you know the benefits of coming into a new organization is that you know you don't have the emotional tie to it. Um, you know, you haven't drafted these players. You haven't um, spent quality time with these players so that you've become attached to them, uh, that you're able to really look at it objectively. And, uh, you know, right now the system is uh, we, we have our challenges and uh, we have some real challenges in front of us. Um, but I think most the most important thing is that we've accurately assessed where those uh, challenges lie. And we have an organizational plan from the major leagues down to the Dominican Republic to address them. Um, I believe in the players that we have. Um, and I believe that the players we have will, um, you know, that they will make strides, but, um, you know, 
I like to consider myself a realist. Um, we have real challenges in front of us. Um, this is not a, uh, a system that is um, thriving right now. Um, you know, the deficiencies are um, easy to identify. And, uh, you know, we've identified them and we're, we're willing to get to work on them. Yeah, and one of the guys I think a lot of Mariners fans, you know, have questions about after his first season um, is Alex Jackson. A lot of places have him as the top prospect in the system, you know, sixth overall pick a couple years ago. Uh, you know, what have you kind of identified with him after he had his struggles at, you know, Class A ball last year in Clinton um, going into his second season? What are some things you guys are going to try to work on with him? You know, with with Alex in particular, obviously his, uh, uh, you know, his struggles have been well documented and, you know, where he was drafted and the amount of money he was given, uh, you know, kind of makes it a high profile story. But, um, Mm -hmm. you know, honestly, there's not going to be a lot of dissecting what's going on. Um, it's going to be more of a clean slate. And um, I was with him last week in Peoria for a, a mini camp. And it's just going to be more about um, accurately assessing where he is right now and uh, moving forward with it. And uh, there'll be very little discussion about, you know, what's happened in the past. And, um, you know, because there's so many variables and, you know, what happened last year, um, you know, to him, you know, there's different people in place. He's grown up. He's learned from them. Um, I'm sure he's been humbled to some extent. Um, I'm sure he's been disappointed. Um, and, you know, we'll take it for what it is right now. And, you know, we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about the past. Andy, I want to ask you about uh, a really cool quote you gave to the Lacrosse Tribune in a story back when you were in the Northwest League in 2008, uh, the Northwoods League in 2008, in which you said, uh, quote, that balance between player development and winning, those aren't conflicting ideas. It's the same thing. If the kids play well, they're going to win. Um, in the minor leagues, so many different organizations talk about how it is about player development. It's not necessarily about the results and wins and losses and whatever, but it does, I think, uh, I mean, as you said, that plays in a lot with how confident guys are, how confident teams are, and to build that culture where guys feel like they're going to go out and win and feel like they have the ability to be impact players day-to-day or an impact team day-to-day, how important is that to create that culture? And for you, being somebody who is so hands-on, getting to know what guys are thinking, how they're feeling, what their goals are personally, all of that, how important is that for you to make sure that you have sort of a personal relationship with these guys, you kind of get to know them, uh, maybe be a little bit more hands-on than what your position is in certain organizations more than others. Um, how much does that factor into it for you going into this year as your first season quite a bit um you know it's an interesting quote i uh, i certainly don't remember saying it but i i know that i did because that's what i believe <laughs> and uh you know I, I i know i have no idea how other clubs look at it um i'm sure there's very very intelligent baseball people that would would dispute this with me um you know and like you said i'll i'll be in uniform uh, i'll be in the dugout uh, in my travels, um, you know, but if you look at where I've, where I've coached, I spent most of my career in a community college where the job really was twofold. You were trying to win baseball games, but you were also trying to get players to division one baseball. Um, and you were trying to get them signed. And then I was, you know, in summer baseball, whether I was in the Cape Cod league or in Alaska or in the Northwoods league, where it was the same thing. I had these kids for a summer and I needed to win, and I wanted to win, but I also needed those kids to go back to their school a better player. And they all came in with specific things that they were working on. And so my whole life has been spent developing and winning. And uh, I just I, I think it's a it's a myth. It's just a talking point of you know you can only do one, and I've never understood that. Um, and I know that you can do both because I've I've done both, and I've seen plenty of other people do both. But it comes down to this, and this is something I believe um, with every with every cell in my body, you have to teach people to win baseball games. And you're trying to win in the major leagues. And so to let them go through a three or four or five year minor league career where it's just about them and developing their own skills, um, I think you're you're working against yourself. Uh, to think that that player is automatically going to flip a switch and become team-oriented and to care about his team and to actually know how to do the things you need to do to win baseball games, uh, that does not make sense. 
so, you know, I look at winning as, as another piece of development where you're teaching people, you're teaching players what it takes to win the baseball game. Um, and that does not take away at all from any of the individual development, but individual development without the ability to, to help the team win is of no value. And so, you know, you have to, um, to me, you have to look at it like that. The, the two, the development and winning do not uh, combat each other at all. They support each other. And the more you develop, the more you're going to win, but the more you win, uh, the more you actually develop. And the whole point is to win games at the major league level. And so, um, I do not view minor league games as practice games. Um, I view them as, and I've always looked at, you know, organizations through periods of time, you know, when, when the twins were kind of the, the class of, of minor league baseball, um, you know, when you had guys like Kadire and Morneau and Latroy Hawkins, those guys were winning minor league championships and they were playing in minor league postseasons. Um, and that's what I'm, that's what we're going to try to do in Seattle. I, I think it's important that players win and that there's an expectation of winning and that winning feels really good and that losing hurts um, just like it does at the major league level. He is Andy McKay, one of the integral parts of the new administration with the Seattle Mariners, the brand-new director of player development there, one of the most interesting hires of the offseason. This has been a fascinating uh, interview for us, Andy, and uh, best of luck with the new position and uh, new organization and a really exciting time uh, in Seattle and heading down to Peoria, I would imagine, very soon for you and everybody else. And uh, thanks again for joining us, and all the best this season. Okay, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me on. We're going to take batting around from the uh, the eyeballs of web pages to the podcasting world that is the show before the show. We welcome in Benjamin Hill. Hi, Ben. Hi, Tyler. Hey, uh, batting around is one of my favorite columns because it always puts together all kinds of stuff that's going on in sort of you know bite-sized pieces, especially around ballparks and the business of baseball and all that kind of stuff. Um, and over the offseason, this offseason, it seems like it's been busier than past offseasons in – all kinds of craziness surrounding ballparks and teams moving and teams staying and what the future looks like for a lot of situations. Uh, so we're going to dive into it full on podcasting format today. And we'll start uh, in Hartford, the yard goats. We talked a lot about last week, some ballpark construction slowdowns um, and through Opening day into Jeopardy for 2016. We now know that the Hartford Yard Goats will not open the 2016 season in their ballpark in Hartford. Uh, what's the latest on that situation? Yeah, well, yesterday, uh, the, you know, the Eastern League, of which the Yard Goats are a part, you know, put out a press release detailing a contingency plan um, for this situation. The ballpark will definitely not be ready for opening day. That's Dunkin' Donuts Park in downtown Hartford. And so right now, as of now, at the very least, the Yard Goats' first 17 road games or home games are going to be played on the road. And when you combine those rescheduled home games with the 17 road games that were also part of the schedule during that time, they have a road trip of at least 34 games to start the season uh, that right now would put opening day uh, in Hartford May 12th. And even that is tentative because, you know, that's an optimistic view that it'll be ready by May 12th. Um, An interesting thing is that all the rescheduled games that are now going to be played at the opponent's ballpark, the Yard Goats will be the road team for all of them. I mean, of course they'll be on the road for all this time, but they will literally be the away team at all 34 of these games, even the games in which they were the home team originally. So they're going to bat first for 34 straight games. That might be a a professional baseball record. (laughs) And what's the thought process behind that? If they announced why they, they they're going to do it that way. Cause being a home team at least gives you the advantage of having last at bat. So now that they're going to throw everything into jeopardy by doing that. Yeah, I don't know the Eastern League's thinking in that. It's a it's a good kind of question to look into. Um, my guess would it be would be just to ease the disconnect of uh, fans who will be going to these games, wanting to see their home team bat last. I I, I really I don't know, but they are all true away games. All thirty-four of the or all thirty-four of these games, including the seventeen that were originally supposed to be at home, um, the Yard Goats were scheduled to play on in Hartford on April seventh, which is opening day in minor league baseball. So now the Richmond Flying Squirrels are kind of in an interesting situation that they have an opening day 
now a week before their scheduled true opening day. And uh, so all, all sorts of kind of quirky things going on here. It's going to be very strange at the you know middle part of May uh, to look on the standings pages for the Eastern League and just see a record, a road record through 34 games and a 0-0 zero and zero mark for home games for the Hartford Yard Goats, uh, which seems like it'll be very strange. Uh, but this situation, I mean, we've been monitoring really closely and we talked a lot about last week. It's not new necessarily uh, to teams going forward, but the one thing that you highlighted in one of these stories is that the Yard Goats you know, we talked last week about what it does to the front office and how those people have to deal with the reaction to something that's really largely out of their control. It's cool to see the way the Yard Goats have kind of kept that same fun, um, wacky identity, I guess, that they've created on social media. That's been really neat to see that that hasn't turned into like, oh, we're sorry, woe is us, this is our tough situation now. It seems like it's just kind of, you know, business as usual right now for them. Yeah, absolutely, and I admire the front office approach to this because, like you said, it's not something in their control. They're just people who work in baseball uh, just like anywhere else, and I've actually done a story before on the Hartford Yard Goats Twitter and the kind of irreverent first-person pop culture quirky approach they've taken to that, um, and, and we're seeing it continue even in the midst of all this controversy. Uh, yesterday, someone tweeted the Yard Goats kind of like, you know, what's the deal, guys? How about you get your stadium together? And the Yard Goats responded – I'm not building a stadium. I'm building a brand, and I, I think that's true. <laughs> uh, you know, get get the the hard news from somewhere else. But the Hartford Yard Goats, you know, at Go Yard Goats, and the way they promote themselves in the community is going to be about the brand they're building. And that's whether opening day is May 12th or further down the line or whenever. Their goal is to create the best you know Yard Goats experience they can uh, when the day comes in which they are an actual real life entity. Let's go from one Eastern League team to another. Uh, the Binghamton Mets have been a uh, part of a long conversation as to what their future is going to be. A lot of people have discussed them as maybe better suited for something like a New York Penn League team. Uh, the ballpark situation there has kind of been in flux for a while. Ownership has been in flux for a while. There was a pretty long-standing plan over the last couple of years uh, that one group wanted to buy the Binghamton Mets, move them to Wilmington, Delaware, give that city a double-A franchise. The Class A advanced franchise from there would move to Kinston, North Carolina, which has been out of the Carolina League since the end of the 2011 season. That all now seems to have calmed down. Binghamton uh, sold to an ownership group, Evans Street Baseball, which has stressed that they will stay in Binghamton. Um, so the Mets are there, but there are still plans, it seems like, around Wilmington and Kinston that now don't seem to involve those. I know there was a story out of Kinston a couple weeks ago that the Texas Rangers are still in talks with the city of Kinston that they want to bring a team there. But what's the latest on Binghamton? Because that's now a, a pretty long discussion that seems to have reached a resolution that will keep that team there. Yeah, the the biggest threat to Binghamton, I mean, if you remember maybe four or five years ago, there was uh, serious rumors that they were going to move to Ottawa. That didn't work out. Then another major right. threat came with this idea that Main Street Baseball would buy them. And just like you said, that game of major league or minor league dominoes, uh, relocating them to Wilmington and X, Y, and Z happening. Um, that was a tumultuous process. Obviously, the sale did not go through um, for a bunch of different reasons, probably too complicated to get into now. Um, and right now, this new owner of the Binghamton Mets is saying very clearly and definitively, I bought the Binghamton Mets so they can stay in Binghamton. So for right now, that's the situation, and the Binghamton Mets are, are not going anywhere. All right, let's kind of move from uh, the batting around column you had that came out today on Wednesday to a blog post you did. Um, kind of out of the land of Tyler, I guess we could call it, in Australia. Um, you got an e interesting email. Kind of take us through that and what you posted about that. Yeah, well, if you remember, guys, uh, last week I, I was talking about a story I did on how the West Michigan Whitecaps use private funding to build their ballpark. Um, that inspired a guy from Australia, Australia named Mick to get in touch with me and say basically like, hey, wish we could privately fund something like that. I'm involved in something much more small time. Maybe you're interested. Maybe you want to help. And basically what he wrote to me is you know, that he is in a, a baseball player, lifelong fan, and he's trying to put together a team in the Tamworth Winter League um, that will start play in April, and they need money to um, you know, renovate. They've, they've had a university donate land to them, but they need money to uh, you know, to build the team basically to you know get the fences and the foul lines and the groundskeeping and the uniforms and and all the expenses associated with starting a uh, you know a very by the seat of the pants 
um, baseball operation. And so the idea they had was to start a GoFundMe page and anyone who donates $100 or more to make the Armadale Outlaws a reality will get an outlaw, Outlaws cap, but probably more importantly, a certificate of ownership in the team. And I thought, hey, it's January and that's quirky and uh, I'm going to share this guy's email and I uh, think maybe some people will be interested in uh, in helping out this very grassroots, um, low-budget operation become a reality. And, you know, we all love baseball. And in Australia, not as many baseball fans, as you know, Tyler. And um, so I put it on the blog. And pretty amazing that this is about five hours since the blog post has gone up today on Wednesday. And when the day started... Uh, $825 had been donated to make the Armadale Outlaws a reality, and right now it's at $2,225, and I think almost all of that, if not all of it, is through this blog post and the publicity it received, and uh, I'm, I'm happy to play a role in, in making this dream a reality, and, and more importantly, it's, it's great for all the – uh, the people who have donated really, really generous efforts, and uh, I think it speaks to the desire to own a baseball team that people have. It's unobtainable for almost everyone, and uh, but to donate $100 to a grassroots effort and say, like, you are part of that and I'm a co-owner, I think that really appeals to something in a lot of baseball fans. Well, and what's really cool is since the post went up today, um, this is as of about noon uh, this afternoon. We're recording on Wednesday the 13th. Eight people had donated a combined 575 Australian dollars to the goal of 5,000. Since then, uh, in just about five and a half hours, it's now up to 24 people who have donated over $2,200, $2,225. So they're almost halfway there. Um, you can go to the blog, bensbiz.mlblogs.com, and you can check out the post there. We're going to retweet it. Uh, from the Australian Baseball League's uh, Twitter account. We'll post some information about it on our Facebook page as well. But it's really cool because the way that people want to be involved in something like this, yeah, you could hang up in your office. you got a certificate that you're part owner of a baseball team uh, half a world away. I think that's pretty fun. Yeah, and if you read the blog post, what, what this guy wrote to me, and then if you read the GoFundMe page, you just see it's a labor of love and a lot of passion, and uh, I think it speaks to a lot of people. And obviously this is not something that has anything directly to do with minor league baseball, but – you know, as minor league baseball fans, I think a lot of people who are minor league fans can find this very appealing as well. Well, speaking of being owner of a minor league team or just a baseball team in general, a lot of... Look at that segue. I know, right? That was outstanding, Sam. There. Well, so it's it's Powerball week. You know, we are doing this on Wednesday. The Powerball is being drawn tonight. None of us know if we're billionaires yet. Um, you know, we talked a lot about it in the office. What would we do with that money? And Ben and I were talking before about, you know, what would you do if you got all that money and... Ben, you said you would want to buy a minor league team, no specific team necessarily. But what would your dream be if you could win tonight's Powerball, have all that money, buy a minor league team? What would you do? Yeah, I would. It is tough. I was thinking, what team would it be? And it was, or would I try to establish in a new market? And I just, I just couldn't wrap my head around all of this yet. But I did start to think I would certainly buy a minor league team, and I would want to put my own, you know, stamp on it. And so. I think that's a really fun thought exercise if you had total control over a minor league team. Obviously, if it's an affiliated team, you don't have total control over the, the players, the product on the field. But in terms of the music you'd play, I'd have a lot of Black Sabbath and Weird Al. Um, <laughs> the food. You know, I had to go gluten-free. We'd have the best gluten-free stand in the entire world, not to mention a lot of great food for everyone, gluten-free or not. I, I would not neglect um, – I You're not, not discriminating against the gluten eater. No, no, I have nothing <laughs> against gluten. Gluten has something against me, but you know, I try to rise above it all. Um, this team would definitely have the best nacho bar in minor league there baseball. You go. I'm uh, in. That that is for sure. And thinking about all the different theme nights you could have, think about how you could use it as a vehicle for, um, you know, promoting one's own quirky tastes. Because minor league baseball is essentially quirky in the game presentation, uh, all the pop culture referencing stuff. I'd love to have money not be an issue and maybe some of those promos not have something to do with how many people can get in the park, but just so I can see how many people kind of have my own weird views as well. You know, I definitely have a get a life night in honor of the uh, Chris Elliott show that was on Fox in the early 90s and uh, things of, <laughs> of that nature for sure. Um, pun battles um, atop the dugout between innings, record fairs on the concourse, a pinball arcade, you know, the list goes on and on. I feel like you'd be the Mark Cuban of minor league baseball. Like it would all, there would be a lot of very good vehicles for you to take center stage. 
There <laughs> like would, the pun battles. Nobody's beating you in a pun battle. To take center stage would be a uh, like an awesome convertible I'd ride out to <laughs> to throw out the first pitch every night. The sad thing is, like, if I won the billion and a half dollar Powerball, I too would buy a minor league baseball team because I think that would be very fun. I to think have. we all would. So. I think we all would. I think yeah. everybody in the office was there. An office pool that I wasn't in on. There was. You're excluded from most. Man, of- we were going to tell you, but you are far away. Well, glad yeah. I guessed, you jerks. Yeah. All right. Well, now I know. I'll That's buy good, you though. some Denver Bears merch. If okay. You- yeah. There we go. That I'm fine with. Ben, would you uh, would you do uh, new logo, new uniforms? Because you are the guy for logos and uniforms in minor league baseball. If you bought a team that had maybe an outdated one or had a parent club's name, would you rebrand? Would you go a full on Ben's Biz rebrand? I would, and I'd really okay. have to uh, brainstorm that Adam in terms point. of what would the best team name be. We could talk about about this for a long time. I've always liked liked uh, platypuses, and without one. having to worry about a focus group, I'd really like to have a platypus themed. Um, That's a good one. imagery around the ballpark. Is it platypuses or platypie? I was just thinking, but I'd, we definitely sell a platypie dessert at the yeah. Recession. See, there you go. It all fits. <laughs> it all fits. That is outstanding. Benjamin Hill is on Twitter. You can follow him. He's at Ben's Biz. The blog is Ben'sBiz.mlblogs.com. There you can find uh, the information about the Armadale Outlaws and the Tamworth Winter League. You can find uh, a link to their GoFundMe page as well. And also, you can check out Ben's stories uh, on milb.com right now about the Hartford Yard Goats uh, batting around about the other ballpark situation uh, in Binghamton. Hager. Town. Uh, there's a really interesting note in there about the Arkansas Travelers right now. They're developing sinkholes on the warning track at their ballpark. They're trying to figure out a way to get that taken care of before opening day. So all that stuff and more is in the latest edition of Batting Around. And uh, Ben, we'll talk to you next week and do it again. All right. Thanks, guys. Looking forward to it. We are just hours away from one of us being a billionaire. Well, not even a billionaire because you don't get all the money unless you take a, the annuity payment. Nobody does that. A nine hundred fifty-six millionaire, whatever the number is, to pay to, depending on your state Man, tax. That's guess, insane. Right? That's insane. It's going to be yeah. enough uh, to buy. You could probably buy every minor league team for all that money <laughs> with a billion dollars. Um, but yeah, it's a fun. Con- it's sad that uh, that conversation is one that we have obviously all had mentally. Like, okay, so when I win the Powerball and I buy a minor league team, this is, and then we just all brought it out into the open. The three of us at last. Yeah. You could go around the office. I'm sure you could poll everybody, and they have all thought the same thing. Oh, of course. It's it's what team would you buy, and what would you do with them, and. Um, just a free idea that I gave to Ben, but I do want to give it on air. If you're, if you are going to name your team, the platypuses, uh, make sure that the, the hat is an actual duck bill hat. Yep. Then the eyes right above it, kind of like the Lake Elsinore storm, but like actually do something with the bill. Um, the possibilities are endless, not just the, uh, platypies that he was talking about. And it actually sort of baffles me that we do not have a, uh, a bird themed an aviary themed team, that has done that. I mean, I guess like the Great Lakes loons could probably give it a shot. Um, the rubber ducks certainly could. The rubber ducks could definitely do it. You would feel like we would have more. I was saying also uh, off air when we got done recording, there was a Japanese team, like I think in the nineties that, uh, was named after a bird. I don't believe it was the Tokyo Swallows, but it was a team that was named after a bird. And they did it. They had eyes on the side of the hat. And then uh, the bill was the actual bird's beak, which I find amazing. And it surprises me we haven't had a team do that. I don't know. So then we'll, that's here's it. some free ideas. That's the Just next thing. run with them. Now uh, we know. Podcast listeners. <laughs> and future, future billionaires yourselves. I'm sure future the, billionaires, uh, all of us. Yeah, I'm sure all the uh, actual winner of the Powerball is listening to this podcast after they have won it. Undoubtedly. And, uh, on a yeah, beach somewhere. Trying to figure out what to do with all their money. They, uh, I was reading a thing today that said you are more likely to die from your pajamas. Um, pajamas. Who says pajamas? Pajamas spontaneously combusting and burning you to death uh, than you are to win the Powerball. This might actually get me in trouble, but wah, I say pajamas. Wah. Do you really? Yeah. Maybe, maybe I say it. Maybe it's just one of those things that I say. I, I've heard it either way. Everybody else says pajamas. I am a uh, pajama person. Oh, okay. Huh. There you go. Maybe I am. But it, my fun Maybe fact about what's what's more likely to happen was the uh, somebody crunched the numbers. I don't know how they figured this out, but I think it was an MLB tweet. Um, Bartolo Colon is more likely to have an inside the park home run <laughs> than you are to win the, the Powerball. That so. more than anything puts it in perspective. Yeah. I that think really more than burning to death in your bedtime clothing. Bartolo <laughs> Colon getting an inside the park homer really makes me realize how rare that would be. Wow. 
Oh, man. I'm glad I haven't actually bought a ticket yet then. I don't feel quite as bad. Um, So we're going to put the – we'll put the wraps on episode number 41 of the show before the show. Huge thanks to Ben Ben Hill and a huge thanks to Andy McKay, the new director of player development for the Seattle Mariners organization. Again, one of our our most interesting interviews, I think, of the offseason. And it's it's an exciting time if you're a Mariners fan, at least because that organization right now is trying something different. Um, There was a lot of conversation last week. The Cleveland Browns um, made the the big splash with uh, the hiring of a baseball guy who is not necessarily a uh, a football mind at all, but Paul D. Podesta, who is kind of one of the the minds behind Moneyball. The Cleveland Browns hired him uh, to be a focal point of that front office and run football operations there. And my thought was, well, at least they're trying something different. You know, I mean, the traditional right. decisions haven't worked out there. And you can kind of think the same thing about the way that the Mariners have been over the last really decade or so. I mean, ever since that 116 win team, the Mariners have not been in the conversation. So at least you're trying something different. If you had hesitations about Andy McKay, I think listening to that interview would, would really put those aside. Yeah, they've been really interesting in terms of making kind of like tiny tweaks. But there's so many tiny tweaks that it's just such a different team composition now than it was like a lot of the just really small trades they've made um could you know end up making you know maybe they're buying low on a lot of the guys that they've traded for uh boob powell being one of them you know we talked about earlier so yeah it it is an interesting time to be a mariners fan it's an interesting time to be following that team um we'll see how the american league west kind of shakes out this year i think it's a little more open than it has been in years past and uh see how it all shakes out for them head to the site right now sam's got prospect projections we've got prospect q a's coming out uh some really interesting stuff as we talked about last segment from ben on ballpark news in and around the world of minor league baseball and that will do it for the 41st edition of the show sam is off for a very exciting date with jury duty tomorrow yeah i wish jury duty was a person get pumped yeah no i'm not (laughs) excited at all but i am going to do my civic duty because what that is what my country asks me. What a citizen. That's, that's pretty much all the least I can do. Sam Dykstra at Sam Dykstra M-I-L-B. Perhaps some live tweets from jury duty. Oh, coming up God. Tomorrow. By the time you get this, it'll already be done anyway. Yeah. So. We'll go back and Never see. Never mind. Yeah, go back and see if Sam was big on the jury duty experience. Um, so that'll do it for uh, for this edition. You can rate, review, and subscribe to the show before the show on iTunes. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Tyler Mon. Minor League Baseball is at M-I-L-B. And we will talk to you next week. We'll